0: I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through NOVA Conversations. All right. Hello, everyone. It is Laura. I am just, like, thinking about this past weekend and my TED Talk. It's November 16th, so um, my talk was two days ago, and I'm just going to record an episode where I kind of ramble a bit, <laughs> and then at the end, I'll do a timestamp where you can go straight to my TED Talk um, the, I'll record what I said. The actual video isn't going to be released for a few weeks, but I wanted to at least put the content out there. Um, and I'm doing this. I know last episode I said, like, I just want to kind of shut up and let other people talk. And I still really want that and mean that. But at the same time, I feel like I have so much to say. (laughs) So I'm recording this episode um, with just all my thoughts floating around my head that I've been thinking about for years. And I had to consolidate the talk into an 18 minute, you know, like really concise, tight clipped, um, easy to flow, whatever uh, talk of what I wanted to say that I've been thinking about for years. So this episode will just be a little bit longer and, um, kind of flesh out some of the details and the thoughts and ideas behind, um, Nova, behind the conservation industry, behind the money stuff, the behind, oh, also like, I really, I love having a podcast platform because I love just being able to have these nuanced discussions and, 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 go in-depth with all the back-and-forth details about how an issue can be resolved because this is not a simple issue. Like, social media wants to make it where we just cancel any organization that, you know, charges a fee or cancel any organization that allows you to hold animals or cancel, like, a a broad sweep of anything um, is... is so unfair. Um, to not only conservation in general, but the people who work really hard to try to make ethical projects and programs happen, that if we just say everyone who does X is wrong, I don't know. that's That's not within what I feel like is a meaningful dialogue and helpful discussion about how to make conservation better. And that's the ultimate goal, is to bring more funds to the really good organizations. And to do that, we have to figure out what the really good organizations are, who they are, what they're doing, why they're doing it right. And that requires some dialogue. So I have my coffee. I'm sitting here, um, buckled in, ready to just kind of blah, blah, blah <laughs> a little bit, uh, So if you don't want to hear me, blah, 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 for the very beginning, and you want to skip ahead, I'll link the timestamp in the notes. Okay, so I'm going to start by just going over my, um, a little bit about my trip. I just got back from Peru, and I was working, well, not working, I was helping an organization um, called Fauna Forever, and I really appreciate all the stuff that they're doing and I I really get to know everyone and know a lot of the interns and the local people and I'll talk about that in a little bit but I chose fauna um, long story short because even though you know I had my doubts and about like an organization that's run by white people basically And I talk about this in my TED talk too, but to be honest with you, once I got there, I was like, this group is doing amazing work, helping locals, putting money back into the environment, putting money back into conservation. And I just love what they're doing and what they stand for. And I got to talk to Chris Kirkby, who is the founder of Fauna Forever. And he's just so humble and doing an amazing job. And it just broke my heart that people think, like, just make a broad, sweeping statement that all organizations run by white people are bad in other countries or something like that. Uh, Again, not nuanced, not helpful to this dialogue that we need to have. Do we need to decolonize? Absolutely. Do we need to make sure that we are being respectful of local cultures and communities? For sure. But... Let's have a good discussion about it. So that's kind of why I'm off social media a little bit more lately, because I just don't care to have these really uh, just kind of mean blanket statements. So listen to the podcast and decide for yourself. You might decide differently, and that's totally okay. But I at least want to have the respectful dialogue that I think these complicated issues require. And uh, you know, another thing is too, like, the issue with conservation is that there's just no money. So it's one thing to say, yeah, you have to pay your interns and you have to pay (laughs) your, um, workers, a fair wage, and I totally, 100% absolutely support that. Always and forever. That's a huge, huge issue. But it's also hard when the people who are running organizations, if they're local, um, aren't getting paid either. Or if they're not local, there, there's just no money there. For example, I know someone who is getting paid $250 a month. Yeah, of course, they would love to hire a local person um, to do that work, but instead, the local people are like, why would I get paid that little if I can go, I don't know, do something else and get paid more money? So... It's just very complicated. That's the, that's the bottom line. It's very complicated. So if you want to have these complicated, nuanced dialogues with me, I'd love to discuss it. Um, we can go back and forth. We can talk, um, ask to be on the podcast, please. I really do enjoy like figuring this out and trying to figure out the root of the issue. So to me, the root of the issue is money and accountability, not enough money. Yes, we know that, but Like I say in my talk, you can't just throw money at a problem and expect it to solve everything. You need to have accountability and that's what conservation is lacking. We need a better form of accountability. Uh, So let's figure that out together and I'd love to hear your thoughts and input. So yeah, so I went to Peru. Well, okay, first of all, this is kind of a random story, but (laughs) it's worth sharing. I love uh I love punk rock music and like I was totally one of those emo kids (laughs) in in the early 2000s you know that whole movement and kind of fell out of it over the years got into other things conservation being one of them but I still love some good hardcore rock music so me and my husband went to Riot Fest in Chicago and in September, and then the week after we went to a festival called Verna's Fest in Birmingham, Alabama, and I had the time of my life. If you, if you are listening to this and you went to those festivals, um, hit me up, because I'd love to know who you heard, what bands you saw. I got to see, like, Motion City Soundtrack and Glassjaw and... Uh, newfound glory. <laughs> my little emo kid heart was so happy. I moshed. I crowd surfed my heart out. Like, it was, it was phenomenal. I had a great time. So, uh, so, coincidentally, after all this really fun month of September, festivals, music, all that stuff, I go to Peru and, um, I'm flying out of Nashville and I went to a concert the night before in Nashville. And uh, it was a band called Dance Gavin Dance. So I was like, oh yeah, I love this. I, I love live music. It's so nice to be able to celebrate and enjoy this. And I crowd surfed early in the concert. Unfortunately, even though I had like surfed so many times in the past month, this one security guard at the very front didn't know what he was doing I guess and like and they're supposed to grab you when you get to the front so, you know And then they like escort you around um, This guy just dropped me. He like Tried to grab me, but he was not doing a good job and he dropped me and I landed on my <clears throat> I landed on my front toe my left toe and Tweaked it really bad. Like I, I, th- I really hurt and he was like, are you okay? But you know, you couldn't hear because of the music and I'm like, no, but what do you say because you can't, I'm like, whatever. So I just kind of like limp away and I'm livid because I'm about to go to Peru and have to walk around the rainforest for two and a half weeks. And this guy just dropped me and now I can't walk straight. So that was not great. I thought it would go away. I thought it would feel better. Like whatever, just shake it off. No, that I probably honestly sprained my toe. From crowd surfing, <gasps> and, it, and it really was uh, a little bit of a problem at the beginning of my trip. Anyway, that's not an important story; just kind of a funny story because I was as mad, but I was also like, whatever, what can you do? So, the next morning, I flew into Lima. Um, I'm getting settled in my hotel or hostel, and I'm trying to figure things out, like trying to rest my foot, trying to sleep. And the next day I explore Lima, and I walk too much because Lima is beautiful, and I just wanted to walk around everywhere. But my foot gets worse, of course. And, um, that evening as I'm resting it, I meet a really cool guy named Anil, and he's from Romania? No, that's wrong. Anil, where are you from? I don't remember. I'll have to text him. But we just have a really good conversation about, like, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, like, psychology. And, and, um, yeah. It was just a really great conversation. I need to follow up with him. He, um, he seemed, he's a really, really interesting guy. And I'm glad I met him and his girlfriend. And then I fly into Puerto Maldonado and go in the back country it's very hot um I just I didn't care though because I was like I'm here I'm in the rainforest I'm in the Amazonian basin and finally I'm going to live out my wildlife dreams and fantasies and it was lovely I met amazing people we have incredible there's so much incredible wildlife there are so many bugs and (laughs) like really cool bugs you know uh I loved every second of it except for the moments where I was limping because I had hurt my dumb foot. I mean, I just could go on and on and on talking about Fauna Forever and um, all the work that uh, they do. And Chris Catola is one of their coordinators and just was so welcoming and kind and helpful to have these conversations about, like, why why charge money to bring interns out quick note i want to make just right here about the term intern it's not an intern in the way we think of it as like you know working a job it's an intern who's getting an experience so maybe intern isn't even the best way of describing it because that is again one of the issues i go into with my talk and Um, if you're not familiar with it, like the, the, one of the main problems surrounding conservation is that like, it's a very, uh, it's lacking diversity. It's very privileged white person career because in order to put stuff on your resume, you can just like pay to go, for example, to the Peruvian Amazon, and then you have this conservation experience and you can say like oh I did this I now give me a job basically so it as my talk says it provides this unjust disadvantage to those who can't afford to travel and further widens the gap of privilege which is not cool but at the same time many Westerners just really want to um, experience the Amazon I am one of them all the interns that I were I was hanging out with want this unique opportunity and I don't I should we not give it to them because it like it's just a need it's just a want it's a um should we not provide that I don't know I think we should be clear and say hey interns if you're paying for this um you know be careful about how you say when you're applying for a job or something like that. Like, I know I I paid for this and I don't plan on using it to boost my resume necessarily, but I can see the conflict. Like I've done it before where I'm like, I went to the rainforest in Costa Rica and I then told a potential employer about that. And they were like, wow, that's incredible. So we just have to be careful um, yes, it's great experience. It's also like this rite of passage, essentially, you know, if you travel to the Amazon and you can kind of hack it, like Meredith's talk was talking about, she was like, I just had to prove to myself that I could do it. And that's kind of how I felt. Like I was in the back country, in the jungle, in the Amazon rainforest, and I could do it. I could hack it. So that's a very, it's a very good feeling to be able to, um, do field work in kind of this unique ecosystem that other people, not everyone gets. So it's, it's a privilege thing. And we just have to recognize that privilege. We have to recognize that privilege and make sure that we aren't being preferentially hired because of that privilege. And, um, you know, you can tell it, like, I think employers really need, do need to do it, their due diligence and make sure that they're not preferentially hiring someone who had the means to travel. And, you know, I, I was listening to the Conservation Careers podcast, too, and um, about this issue with volunteering volunteering and paying to do this work. And Nando, one of the um, people in the interview, had a really good point where he's talking about, you know, instead of just saying, here are my credentials, I got to travel and do these things, my credentials could be i here's the opportunity that was presented to me i but i here's what i did with it i couldn't afford to travel i couldn't have these backcountry experiences and these unique charismatic um species experiences and travel the world but i learned how to you know i can't think of the examples he gave like i was really good at doing social media for a local nonprofit and that has to hold as much weight in our conservation field as extravagant travel and conservation adventures that you pay for because otherwise nothing will diversity will be um, just thrown out the window so i'll pull up i want to i want to talk to nando about that because i thought that was a really good point um I want to listen to what he said again, actually. So, anyway, we had really good conversations. Like, uh, Katola, oops, he was saying, like, there's not an easy solution because people want to travel and Fauna Forever, local nonprofits and other really good groups doing great work need the funds. So I said, well, what if we, we could do two things and not with just Fauna, but just in general and to, help, to help alleviate some of these problems. One thing is we can um, provide interns with credit, college credit, because that helps even out the playing field. So it's not about just like how much money you have, but if you get credit do this backcountry work and to do these experiences then um it's it's just who can you know it's just like part of your college experience and hopefully everyone will be able to go to college um but again that's not a problem i need to solve so i'm just not going to worry about that necessarily but we can encourage organizations to provide credit to institutions, and that just takes communication and facilitation with the host organization. That could that could be like a burden that um, you could put on the intern to actually get college credit for their trip instead of um, just paying money, and that will help even the privilege gap. Another thing we could do is, um, you know, besides already talking about like having employers be aware not to hire preferentially for those who could travel and do all these excursions and adventures. We can redistribute the wealth. So what do I mean by that? And this is what I'm kind of trying to work on. Like I can't solve all these other problems, but I can do what I can and maybe chip away at some of these issues. So there are clearly people in the world who have money and want to travel. Um, not just interns, but other people. Maybe, you know, maybe you tried to get a job in conservation like so many of us and couldn't find anything, couldn't find anything, wasn't the right fit. So you um, went to go work at Amazon because you need money and you have a family to take care of and whatever. So that person has the desire to go and experience biological research but isn't a biologist we want to tap into that we want to help redistribute the wealth that other people are getting i mean maybe this example is bad because amazon workers probably i don't know anyway i'm just rambling now but like if you have the funds and the willingness and the ability to be able to travel right and you want to see these unique places, unique ecosystems, biological adventures, science, tourism, that's actually done in a good ethical way where it gives back to the local community. Yeah, and that was another solution. Like the the money that people can put into some of these trips will provide scholarships will provide subsidies will you be used to help grants for local and indigenous communities and i think that's the kicker that's the kicker right there like we can redistribute the wealth from people in western countries who have um disposable income who want to do this travel and this work um i say work it's not work it's adventure they want to experience the life of a, uh, the life of a biologist and then one for one you can pay to see this and then provide a, a scholarship for someone local who wants to get into ethical ecotourism who wants to get into biological research and doesn't want to leave their country because of that brain drain that's something i tried to include in my ted talk but it was like a 20 seconds that I had to cut because <laughs> I wanted to just keep talking about, but this, this idea of like, there is a brain drain. Um, we can provide, like if we have the funds, we can provide scholarships and grants and subsidies to local people to help avoid the brain drain of the brightest students leaving their countries be- due to lack of opportunity. So it's, a multi- multi-faceted approach, many, many things to consider, many different angles. And I just come around to, over the past couple of months, Nova, I have been trying to solve everything and do everything and be everything to everyone and not piss off anyone. And I can't, I can't do, I and it kind of came back to like this, oh, I feel like I can solve all the world's problems, and that's kind of prideful, and that's really like a messianic complex. (laughs) Uh, I can't do everything. I am one person who is also not getting paid. So I'll do what I can. We'll do what we can. Given the resources and the... But given the resources and the abilities and the knowledge that we have, we will do what we can to make the world a better place, and this is my small contribution, and it feels really good to finally know, like, just stay in my lane, (laughs) you know? Like, just don't try to solve everything. Just breathe and know you are doing what you can do. (sighs) While still wanting to pursue Because that's the thing. I got so distracted with all the stuff. I wanted to travel. I wasn't, I mean, with COVID, no one was really traveling, but I got so distracted with like providing this database that would be useful and helpful to, um, find all these different types of organizations and experiences and very complicated. I, I still would love to work on that. I have pages and pages of notes of a database that will provide opportunities and provide a way, like a quiz or like a, click here and click what you want to find and i i just couldn't make it work and web development is so freaking expensive oh my gosh so it just wasn't it wasn't coming to fruition the way i wanted it to and maybe i'll try again later or if you are a web developer and you have the funds and the time please let me know because oh my gosh i could share my pages of notes with you and ideas i would happily talk and and go back and forth about what I like what could be useful for this so that it's not just like you know it's not paying to work a job it's paying to experience something really cool and to help local economies like there's a reason people are paying for really good ethical projects and they should be paying for those things and it helps redistribute the wealth like I've been talking about you're not paying to work a job that's never okay you guys know this and we would never promote or support that <sighs> so anyway so i i wanted to do this website with a with a database of all these projects and i was hoping that would come to fruition and it just wasn't working the way i wanted and then i was like well here's what we need we need a review database of all these conservation organizations and again i still have pages and pages of notes about how to do that i want to you know do something like charity navigator where they can they have a formula of um you know how they use their funds and how they help account you know how they help local economies how they help conservation like it's all put together in this formula um we have a rating system for five different types of accountability levels from everything from like how they treat their volunteers and unpaid workers to how they treat local and indigenous communities? Are they actually giving back? Um, where's the transparency of funds? Are they treating wildlife and animals well? And are they actually doing effective conservation work? So all these levels, again, if you want to help me build this, or if you want to do it, I don't care. Take it. I will share my information and I will share my ideas. I just want it to happen and I can't do everything. (laughs) I can't, I can't do everything. Uh, so please take the lead. Um, I know I was, I was talking to uh, Dakota from bear and she had this, like the same idea at the same exact time. And um, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to make it happen. I thought it would be just like easy. We'll just put some organizations on a database and make it happen. And it's not, it's never that easy. So uh, reach out. In the meantime, I'm going back to my original love of of travel and of experiencing these places and getting other people to experience nature too and to see why it's so valuable to put money and funds to. So going back to my trip to Peru, uh, it's just, I had a blast. Um, (laughs) I want to like name everyone who I was there with. Um, but I want to especially shout out to Tabsy, (laughs) Tabsy Spivey, who we went to the back country in Alerta, which is near Bolivia, and lived in a shack with um, the the bird banding crew. So it was me and Tabsy for a bit, and then Chris Catola and um, Christian, Raul, Noe, and Juan Carlos. And and we lived with this lovely couple, Irene and Hamilton, and they let us stay in their house, their um, structure, which was very rustic, and I loved it. I mean, this is how... this is how so many people live. It's... no running water. Bef- definitely no hot water, no air conditioning, despite the temperature being in the 100 degrees Fahrenheit range, which I think is like 40 Celsius, 39. So it was, it's very hot. There's no fans. There's no way to cool off. There's no escape from the bugs, escape from the heat. Um, and, and that's how a lot of people live in the world and it was good to remember and be grateful for what we have and what the privileges that we are given. So we lived in this shack and we got to do bird banding and it was incredible. I, I held a royal flycatcher. I got to extract a mot-mot from the net. So many hummingbirds, hermits. Uh, there was a golden-collared toucanet. I did not hold that one because of the very sharp serrated bill, which is used to cut open fruit with a tough skin. So I didn't want to subject myself to that, Um, but that was really cool to see. And just amazing, incredible diversity. Literally I have so many pictures and all the birds, I'm like, I don't remember the name of this bird. It was like a white spotted ant thrush. And all the birds had names like this, like the black headed uh, ant. Shrike and (laughs) things like that. (laughs) They all have ant names because, um, in the Amazon they're like big ant, uh, colonies that when the ants go marching and when the ants go marching and, um, spook up all the bugs and, like, eat everything in their path, there's a whole mixed flock of birds that go and get the bugs and insects that are spooked up by the marching ant colonies so it's very cool um we got some mannequins i i i love the fire cap mannequin super cute and they're so tiny and they're adorable there was also a white bearded mannequin it was incredible but then um i'll try to make the story quick (laughs) Basically, we were setting the nets on my very last full day, and with the hopes of trying to catch some birds the next morning, which would be, like, my last day, and Tabsy's last day, too. And, um, set them up, it was very hot, but then something called a friaje came in, which is cool air from the subarctic, um, the Antarctic, and it was terrifying it was like a a tornado that never stopped it would just like was really strong winds um, because you know like really hot humid air mixing with cool air creates these huge strong winds and I was with Christian and I was like I was terrified for my life like I had never been so scared in the Amazon it wasn't it wasn't animals and things like that that were scary in the Amazon it's falling trees (laughs) uh, because they're random and you never know. I mean, you have to be so, it it could just happen and you're, it's so loud and there's so much wind that I was shaking like a leaf. Um, plus we were on a Brazil nut plantation, which means that if you've, if you've seen raw Brazil nuts, they're like six inches in diameter, heavy, huge. And with all that wind, if one were to fall, it would It would kill someone. Um, So, not to mention a tree fall. Brazil. I really had the thought, like, my last day, I'm like, I'm going to die. It's my last day and I'm going to (laughs) die. So, it was uh, intense. And then, finally, thankfully, we made it out into the open and met up with everyone else. The um, guy who drove us there had left because he didn't want to get stuck in the mud or stuck behind tree falls, which makes sense, but it meant we had to walk. And and there were all these trees that had fallen across the path. Um, and then it started pouring rain. So we had to walk about three miles back and in the pouring rain. And uh, that was an adventure, rocking along the like random road in Peru. And just trying to make the best of it. Thankfully Juan Juan Carlos had his motorbike and we could kind of shuttle and take turns trying to get back to the house quicker. (laughs) But it was quite the adventure. It was quite the adventure. In order to make things a little bit more fun and positive, even though my phone was dying and it was really rainy and wet, I I did my best to... um, I had my phone and I played, um, some, some music (laughs) to make the walk and the, the motorbike better, and now I will forever remember Turnstile's, um, Glow On album as the album that got me through, um, the friaje and the rain, because it was, like, the soundtrack to that evening. So it was fun. It was fun. I'm gonna take a quick break and... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come back with more in a little bit. Okay, I am back. Uh, I had to go to the bathroom. Surprise, surprise. My bladder is very tiny, not to mention having two kids, but I won't go into that. Um, yeah, so the friaje evening was very, very interesting. I, you know, all things considered, it wasn't too terrible. It was an adventure. It was a story to tell. And whatever, I survived it. The next morning, however, I felt shaky and weak and had a fever and felt horrible. Clearly we weren't bird banding due to the weather. We didn't get the net set up. And, um, I just stayed in bed and hope, hoped it passed and it did for a little bit. And I was like, okay, got to, got to drive back and I'm feeling much better. And then, you know, I took some medicine, whatever. I'm feeling fine. The drive back to the town of Puerto um, was horrible. (laughs) I, yeah, this is going to be, I'll just, I have, I started having really bad diarrhea. Let's just put it that way. I just, my stomach, something was not agreeing with me. And I have to, I have to remind And I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but the the house where we were staying at, like I said, did not have running water. So in order to wash yourself or dishes, um, it was like scoop buckets from the creek, which was um, stagnant in many parts, and rinse the dishes with the creek water. Um... There were animals around everywhere, so there was probably just a lot of feces in the water. Um, And my, you know, people who live like this are just used to it. My delicate American stomach was not used to this amount of unfiltered water. And so I got very sick. I got very sick. Whew. That was the sickest I'd ever been. I was in, like, laid out in the ho- hostel in Puerto. Tabsy got me some water, thankfully. Crackers, which I didn't even eat because I couldn't eat anything. I was sick. Um, I felt miserable. I had to fly out from Puerto to Lima the next day. Didn't know how I was going to do that, but I just, like, laid in bed and rested. And then... Somehow made it to Lima, whatever. Just took a lot of medicine and hoped that I was feeling better. And I would, I would like pump myself up and be like, I'm feeling better. Okay, I think I'm turning a corner. I think I'm turning a corner. Got to Lima. Got to the hostel. I collapsed. I, I couldn't do it. I, <laughs> oh, oh, I am um, laid in bed for literally a day and a half just drinking, um, Gatorade and I got really scared. So I actually, the next day I went to a clinic in Lima and tried to, um, it's, you know, like I don't speak Spanish well, but when you're really sick and your mental, like your mental ability is not there, it just makes speaking a different language even harder. Uh, I was like, aplaus ah, ingles, uh, like, everyone who looked at me was like, wow, that girl looks really bad. Like, I, I was struggling, um, and I mean, I had to, oh, I don't want to relieve relive this, but, um, I don't want to discourage anyone from going to Peru. Please don't hear that because it was so worth it in the long run, but I, um, it was, it was an adventure. <laughs> it was another adventure So finally I got to I got to a doctor and she spoke some English and I just remember laying on the bed thinking like okay she's gonna give me antibiotics I'm getting electrolytes thank goodness I'm I'm gonna be okay I'm gonna be okay and then the next day I flew out to from Lima to Atlanta and sick as a dog still I mean I, I yeah. Oh, it was rough. I landed in Atlanta, had to still take a groom transport back to the town of Chattanooga. And, but I made it. I made it. And when my husband picked me up, I was so relieved. I just laid in bed and I had like soup. He gave me soup and I uh, was finally home. Um, and I, took a warm hot shower actually i think i took a bath because i couldn't even stand for that long all in all i was out for a whole week and i had to do like i had to travel while being that sick and that made it really really difficult but at the same time i'm glad i wasn't sick and missed you know the wildlife and the birds and the cool adventures that we had it was not a, a an experience I wish to replicate, but at the same time I survived it. And you know, when you can survive something that's really tough, you are stronger for it. So, what an adventure. I made it back and I even told Danny, my husband, I was like, I wanna don't get, get me out of this godforsaken country <laughs> when I was really sick. But, you know, as soon as I got back, I was like, I wanna go back. I'm going back to Peru and I'm going back. So it, clearly it didn't discourage me that much. Uh, anyway, not for everyone. I know. it's not for everyone, but I am glad I went. And wow, we are already like 40 minutes in and I'm gonna um, start to wrap it up a, a bit. I will take another break and I'm gonna um, I'm gonna read my TED Talk script. And maybe interject some parts that I didn't get to say or wanted to elaborate on, but didn't have time to. So, um, I will I will do that in just a second here, and um, yeah, stay tuned. Okay, okay, we are back. Well, we I am back. Actually, that brings up a new another point that I wanted to request from you. So I love doing this podcasting, but I also don't love that it's just me. Um, I would love to have another host. If you are thinking that you are interested in maybe having these discussions, please reach out. I'm specifically hoping for someone that maybe can lighten the mood a bit um, and have some uh, humor in with them because I'm such a, like, I'm, I love to laugh and stuff, but I really can kind of be heavy and serious and tend to be a little depressing. So if, if you have that tendency and interest to bring conservation around full circle and make it kind of lighter, please reach out. Um, i also would love someone who's not American. I would, really like to hear and interact with more diverse people and um, from across the globe. So I know mainly Americans who are white, but I don't want to just have my circle end there. So I want to be intentional with that, especially in a potential host, co-host with me. So if this sounds like someone you know, or is you, please. Email me, Nova Travel at gmail.com. Nova Conservation Travel, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can reach out on Instagram at Nova underscore conservation. Oh, and also, we do have a Patreon. It's fairly new, um, but it, you know, doing any type of work, conservation work, is underpaid and undervalued, as we know. So I love having these conversations and i will continue to do it for free um, but it, if you feel like this is something beneficial to you and you have the means um, we would really appreciate it and it helps give all this energy time money back to conservation so i'm not i'm doing this because i love it and i really do want to help out conservation but ultimately you know it, it is a it is work <laughs> it is a work and um, we're trying not to work for free as much. That's just the way it goes. Okay, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to read off my TED Talk draft, and I might I might kind of s- I might stop. Oh, at parts and just interject. So here here's my talk. <clears throat> What if I told you that there is a career path more competitive than acting, modeling, fashion, and the arts, yet this is a career in the sciences, that the average pay is less than $35,000. And even if you're wildly successful, it's unlikely you'll ever make a six figure salary. This job requires years of volunteering, working for free, and even paying to work. And when a lucky candidate does get paid, they barely make a minimum wage. This job also requires constant moves, hazardous work conditions, and living in some of the harshest biospheres imaginable. Many employers don't provide travel stipends or health insurance. In fact, the higher-ups are often abusive, ungrateful, and demoralizing to their staff and unpaid workers. So it's no surprise that this job comes with severe mental health problems financial strain. Would you take this job? What if I also told you this job is essential for thriving life on our planet? Do you know what this job is? This is the job and often plight of a wildlife biologist. Now this is an oversimplification, a worst-case scenario, but unfortunately it's not too far from the truth. How did this happen? What's going on? Let's back up. We all know the environmental problems we face. Climate change, biodiversity loss, natural disasters. But if you don't, or have been living under a rock, here's a somewhat depressing recap. The science is clear. Climate change will affect us all in disastrous, significant ways. Sadly, the world's poorest individuals will suffer the most even though less developed countries have contributed the least to this global problem. That could be a whole another TED talk all on its own. This is, is, that's so sad. Anyway, furthermore, humans are irreparably destroying our vast natural resources. Our earth has built-in ecosystem services, which are the benefits that a healthy, functioning planet provide to us for free. Things like pollination, Water filtration and carbon storage are valued at 46 trillion US dollars per year, with some estimates as high as 140 trillion. This could be a whole nother talk, too, talking about ecosystem services and the benefits they provide. And I also wanted to add, but didn't have time to, that the high estimates of 140 trillion take into account human health and well being. So that's where that. Huge disparity comes from. In other words, it will actually cost the global economy this amount to replace what the earth provides to us for free. And it's not just tangible benefits. I want you to close your eyes for a second. Picture your favorite natural landscape. A sandy beach, a dense forest, or a snow-capped mountain. Smell the fresh air. Visualize the pristine view. Now open your eyes and think, can you put a price on this? How do you quantify natural beauty? This is currently all free and available to us all, but it comes at a cost. And the people who work to protect these landscapes are not getting paid. We are the wildlife technicians, biologists, and hands-on-the-ground researchers who are constantly undervalued and underfunded. And I was gonna add a little thing here. We're expected to work for free for minimum wage, if that, to maintain the natural beauty that you enjoy. I know this firsthand, and yet I continue to do the work, despite the eco-anxiety and debilitating depression when I consider the state of the world. But guilt and fear doesn't do anything to solve these problems. So I decided to do something about it. I came of age in the early 2000's, where information about melting ice caps, stranded polar bears, and stranded polar bears was just starting to hit mass media, disseminated by this new thing called the internet. As a sensitive child and now an overly empathetic adult, of course I wanted to help solve these problems. But the story that propelled me into true environmentalism was the life of Chico Mendes, a brave Brazilian who was assassinated while protecting his rainforest community, and livelihood in the face of deforestation and logging. His heroic story broadened my worldview outside of my American suburban bubble, and maybe to this day why I'm so fascinated by the Amazon." I could talk about Chico Mendes for a long time here. Um, I remember Miss Crady's class in Spanish 4 in high school. She just didn't want to teach us one day and put on this video of Chico Mendes, I can't remember what it's called, but it was like a documentary about his life and I was captivated. And from that moment, I became a vegetarian. I did all this research like on my desktop at home trying to figure out how to be more environmentally aware and friendly. Um yeah, I just I it was just that was the story. Okay, back to the talk. So I have my career goals. Become a one woman real life Captain Planet, and save the Earth single-handedly. And at this point, I insert a picture of when I was dressed as Captain Planet for Halloween back in, like, like, it must have been, like, 2007. And, um, some of my friends were the Planeteers, so, um, shout out to all you guys. <laughs> but how? I had no idea. How was I going to do this career? No idea. Studying biology seemed like a good place to start, and I expected to get a job right out of college. Oh, wait, what's that? I needed a master's? Okay, check. Time to get my job. This is what happens after grad school, right? You find a job and are finally able to pay back all those loans. Uh, not in the conservation industry. Uh, stretching, excuse me. Oh, okay. Not in our conservation industry. You see, there are three main career paths to choose from. Government work research in academia or nonprofit and NGO work. The latter of these two rely on a very narrow, limited stream of funding from two main sources: grants, which are time-consuming and difficult to obtain, especially for conservation research, and fundraising. And if you've ever worked in the nonprofit sector, you know people aren't lining up to give you money. And if they are, please tell me your secrets. No, seriously, if if you if you have money in a nonprofit, please help me. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. The entire conservation industry is balanced on these thin stilts of unstable sources of revenue, again, from grants and fundraising. In our capitalistic society, conservation provides no tangible product. How does a study on animal wildlife benefit global markets? It doesn't. Plus, a tree is worth more dead than alive. That's a shame. This means that the conservation sector has a basic economics problem. There's a lack of supply of funding and jobs and a very high demand of willing employees. With products, this leads to price gouging. With jobs, this leads to exploitation. There are too many people who want to work in wildlife and simply not enough jobs. You might be thinking, what's the big deal? Not enough conservation jobs. Oh well. Those snowflake millennials should just work in an office like the rest of us and be grateful for what they have. <laughs> However, there are some major systemic problems that result from this dynamic. I'll name two. First, organizations often take advantage of our passion and exploit individuals. Like I said, I couldn't believe how hard it was for me to find a career. I had to travel to do short-term seasonal work that needed temporary field researchers. And I'm going to interject here, um, because with my story, um, I had to consolidate it quite a bit, but I, I love traveling, so I didn't like personally mind it, but I'm kind of telling the story for a lot of people, um, like, you know, so and I even said in another draft, I was like, this is what we all dream of. It was like being like Steve Irwin or David Attenborough and living this wildlife worker's dream where you're holding animals and traveling around the world. And then I said in another draft, like, I didn't care that I wasn't getting paid because I was, I was doing this work. Um, and now like looking back, yeah, I was privileged to be able to do this work for low pay. And now I'm trying to use my voice and my platform as a way of saying that this is not okay and that we shouldn't allow this. So, um, yeah, all that to say. So I worked seasonal jobs that needed temporary field researchers. Many, most of these positions have very low set stipends, meaning you can work for 10, 11, sometimes 12 hours a day for weeks on end in very strenuous conditions in order to get a project done. The monetary breakdown for one of these jobs i c- came to i kid you not four dollars an hour and i have a master's degree another part i cut out was basically like i'm afraid that if i recalculate it and and am more honest with myself and then less in denial it's going to come down to even lower so eh, let's just not go there <laughs> and the sad thing is this is generous Some organizations actually require you to work for free, and the very worst ask you to pay, to work, a job. I and so many like me have put up with abuse and manipulation. There's actually an entire community called Lonely Conservationists dedicated to telling our stories. And here I put up a slide on the Lonely Conservationists and I um, reached out to Jessie with permission because she and her community have been so influential in helping me um, and all of us conservationists. So I just wanted to make sure that it was okay that I give her some credit um, in my talk. But the other thing I wanted to say too, while I'm taking this break, is that like this talk is was aimed at like the general public. You know what I mean? So my podcast that I'm working on is is, is specifically for more people who are biologist-minded, who know, probably know a lot of this stuff. Um, So I had to really, I had to really parse down my talk to aim it for the potential, what am I trying to say? I had to really narrow my 18-minute talk down to a general public to make it understandable for them on why... This is such a problem okay so yeah so there's an entire community called lonely conservationists um dedicated to telling our stories but we've done this because they've said it's the only way to work in wildlife so we put our heads down don't complain and plow through because we want one of those rare coveted jobs you know the one that makes at least forty thousand dollars a year with benefits if you're really lucky And this is the worst part. If you're unsuccessful in finding a career in conservation, it not only feels like a personal failure, but also a failure to protect our planet, to that vow we made to protect our planet. Many times we suffer from extreme burnout and our passion that was used to manipulate us to work for free disappears in a puff of smoke. We need this passion, this fire to keep burning for the sake of our planet. So point two, not only is exploitation rampant, um, but another thing that results from lack of conservation jobs is that there's a huge lack of diversity in conservation on all levels, socioeconomic, race, class, education, and so on. And at this point, I put up Ariel Forner and Alex Bond's paper from 2017 entitled, Volunteer Wildlife Technicians are Bad for Ecology, or something like that, Um, and I'll link that too. But I mentioned that in the first talk. Think about it. Who can afford to wait around volunteering for years to hopefully get a minimum paid job? Not people who are poor. This means that many career conservationists are from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. They can fall back on their parents or partner's support when pay is inconsistent or non-existent. And (laughs) I would just want to give a shout out to my husband here. He was like, hey. (laughs) that's you Laura and I was like yeah I know so then um, the next slide has the Mongabay article which is like a rich person's career Um, conservation has become a rich person's career so sorry I keep interrupting sadly conservation has become a privileged generally white person's career therefore we must intentionally include those of lower economic backgrounds indigenous cultures or others excluded and marginalized from this work. Their voices and perspectives are essential for effective conservation. Again, that whole point could just be a whole nother talk all on its own. And I could go into more of that, but I didn't for this particular talk. Listen, we're destroying our planet. Mass extinction is imminent. People are dying we don't have the luxury of time. I know, and now I'm telling you that we need to worry about equity, inclusion, and diversity in conservation jobs. Thanks for the optimistic talk, Laura. But here's the thing. There is enough money in our global economy to solve the world's problems. Unfortunately, there's just no incentive for doing so. And conservation groups are forced to make do with limited government aid, scattered short-term grants, and inconsistent private donors. This is absolutely not sustainable. So what do we do? Let's flip the script, which is the title of my talk, Flipping the Script on Conservation. I made it my mission to find out what conservation really needs. Clearly our industry needs jobs, um, and conservation therefore needs money. I went into that already. Of course, but you can't just throw money at a problem and hope it will solve everything. Uh, parts of that I cut out say, you know, most problems in the world need money and we need more streams of revenue that aren't reliant on grants and fundraising. Yeah. We also need creative solutions to help others appreciate biology. Unique ways for people to see, experience, and become immersed in nature. For only then will they value it. But here's the kicker. Ultimately, conservation needs accountability. It's not just about exploitation and jobs. Oftentimes, to make revenue, many institutions charge fees for tourists and volunteers to interact with charismatic wildlife in unique, often tropical locations. Now, I'm all for getting more money to conservation, (laughs) you know this, but these trips can have unintended consequences. First, as you can imagine, animal welfare is disregarded in order to make a profit. So this includes things like unnecessary animal harassment or handling, improper veterinary care, and unethical living conditions. Um, there is a lot of work being done in this field in this area and a lot of awareness. So I put I said this is a huge problem that has been brought to the public eye lately. Looking at you, Tiger King. Second, and more subversive, is that many companies choose to exploit their volunteers by cleverly marketing their conservation adventures and charging exorbitant fees. So I know someone who paid thousands of dollars to visit the Amazon with the expectation that she would gain knowledge and skills. Instead, she was told to lay concrete her whole trip and then was gaslit into thinking this is normal. It's not. To hear her story, go to episode one, no, two. (laughs) But even if someone has a great travel experience, This can hinder meaningful progress in diversity and equity. In our highly competitive industry, a career hopeful can simply pay for experience to boost their resume. This provides an unjust disadvantage for those who don't have the means to travel and further widens the gap of privilege." Now, again, that could be a whole talk on its own, and that's what we're trying to avoid is, That's what one of the goals of NOVA is trying to avoid, just this this unjust disadvantage for those who don't have the means to travel and widening the gap of privilege. So I say then, next, we can change this. We can combine all of these needs for conservation and create trips and experiences that focus on redistributing wealth to the most ethical organizations. You know, the ones that hire locals at a fair wage don't promote neocolonialism or parachute science and actually treat their volunteers with respect and dignity. Oh, and they have to help conservation. (laughs) So then I show a slide of, um, you know, some questions to ask, uh, when you're examining the ethics of a conservation organization. And, um, I mentioned those at the top and I will, I will try my best to put a link to, I don't have that published yet, but, um, Yeah, so things to ask. And again, I'm I'm talking about redistributing wealth. So people who can afford to pay um, can really help us here. We can redistribute the wealth so that the burden doesn't fall on us, the underpaid biologists and field technicians, and the burden can be alleviated. That's, That's the goal. So, I'll continue. Case in point, I recently returned from a trip to the Peruvian Amazon where I volunteered with a nonprofit run by a white Westerner. Initially, I felt a bit icky because I hate this whole white savior mentality that people with money will swoop in, help the locals, and then leave, often for a moral notch on their belt or a virtuous feather in their cap. But my view completely changed when I saw how grateful locals were to have the extra funds to protect their communities, wildlife, and culture. Not to mention jobs, ecotourism, when done right, has the potential to bring economic streams into parts of the world that desperately need it. Otherwise, people look elsewhere for work, resorting to things like illegal gold mining or drug trafficking to put food on the table for their families. We can change this. For example, I know of a former sea turtle poacher who used to make his living stealing eggs to sell on the black market. Now he hosts and guides travelers who want to experience the ethical side of turtle conservation. And this is where I, um, I cl- deleted this part. We can also provide locals with merit-based scholarships and grants. This helps avoid the brain drain of the brightest students leaving their native countries due to lack of opportunities. We all want to travel in a post-COVID world, but we must travel smarter, more intentionally, more ethically. We must become the anti-tourist. I mean, ideally, we create a society in which people are not selfishly motivated by money or power and would inherently do what's best for humanity and future generations. But I'm not holding my breath. In the meantime, what if we could turn everyone into a conservationist? Even you. And another part that I took out was just saying like, ideally conservation wouldn't need to re- resort to ecotourism to get funds because we would inherently do what's best for our ecosystem services. But uh, again, I'm not holding my breath. So then I show a slide with a quote from Chico Mendes, my hero, <laughs> and it says, at first I thought I was fighting to save rubber trees. Then I thought I was fighting to save the Amazon rainforest. Now I realize I'm fighting for humanity. And go on to say this quote by chico mentes exemplifies the new script we need to write it's not about tree-hugging hippies trying to save some random species of slug it's about protecting the wild places where all species live that includes us humans for when we support and sustain our ecosystems we are supporting and sustaining ourselves After all, Mother Earth has been quietly, efficiently working in the background for billions of years. From brilliant butterflies to mysterious ocean creatures, we live on a beautiful planet. What if I told you that there was a job, full of passion and purpose, that could sustain biodiversity in all forms, not just of flora and fauna, but of peoples, cultures, races, and backgrounds? What if you could be part of this movement it's time we heed the call for us all to be conservationists we simply can't afford not to thank you <sighs> yeah so that was my talk i love the idea of sustaining biodiversity not just flo- like i said not just foreign fauna not just animals and plants and trees but of peoples and cultures and identities and everyone and we we need to work towards that so um i hope this inspired you i hope that um i hope that you will join us on this new wave of conservation this new wave of truly authentic experiences and i i I do kind of hate the term ecotourism because it's so broad, but um, yeah, but that's that for people who want a truly ethical experience that distributes wealth to conservation, to biodiversity, and to people, we can make that happen. It's possible, and that's what needs to happen for the good of the planet. thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Um, this is feel. I feel like this is where I like thank the academy. Like, you know, I couldn't have done this without my, my parents who raised me. I couldn't have done it without my husband and his support, um, (laughs) to help watch our kids. Um, so I can go to Peru and I can work, do this work. Uh, my mother-in-law, Pat, who watches the kids, too, and is just so grateful. Um, Nana and Grandpa, our kids' grandpas, and Aunt Coley and Mikey. Thank you, family. Thank you, family. Um, Thank you also to Fauna Forever who hosted me um, and let me stay and crash and be a part of all their cool projects that they're doing and their awesome biodiversity work and their amazing um, carbon sequestration projects and their ability to, you know, hire local people and all the this truly incredible people I met, not just the interns, but also the the locals, um, specifically Ronaldo and Jessica and Jesus, um, who just love their love their rainforest. And love the wildlife there, and want to protect it. Um, yeah, I I have so much work to do. Uh, I <laughs> I have to really work on our website. It is behind on so many fronts. Um, so thanks for your patience. Um, I have to. Um, our, our interviews will continue next week. We have Sebastian Moreno next week, and I'm really excited to share that conversation with you guys. And we have a bunch of cool interviews coming up too. A lot that I've recorded in, in the past like, couple of months that I never released, and um, and a few more really interesting people that we're talking to in the future. So good things coming um, yeah, lots going on. Please, if you, if this is meaningful to you, support us. Even if it's just like, you know, re- leaving a review or ra- rating our podcast or sending an Instagram message, um, it means a lot. I I think this is valuable work that needs to happen and I can't do it alone. I know that. I I've tried to do it alone and like, you know, I think I can solve the problems, but I can't. We need, it needs to be all of us. And I also want to give a huge shout out to Natasha um, Bartoladas, who has been doing a lot of the social media, especially while I was in Peru. And now she's working. She got a full-time job up in Minnesota working at a loon no, not sanctuary, but a loon um, scientific place can't remember the name of it, but good for her. I'm so proud of her. And then Gaspar Hernandez, who is with our intern this past semester, who did a lot of the podcast editing. Thank you so much, Gaspar. Um, he got college credit for helping with this communication process and um, just will be super successful. I have no doubt um, because he's just an amazing dude. Okay, I'm going to end it here. And yeah, there's so many other people I want to shout out (laughs) and I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end it now. So thank you for listening. Leave us a review. Let me know if you have any questions, comments, and I will, um, I will talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet.